This is IAQ Radio, indoor air quality radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlatan, and now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. We've got a great, uh, interesting uh, concept here today. We're going to do an open mic show. We've got a couple people that have already joined us. I know Jay Stakes on the line and Pete Consigli. We expect to hear from uh, maybe Carl Grimes and Joe Madosh may be able to join us. John Donnie will definitely be jumping in here for the second half anyway. Um, and Eric Shapiro may be able to join us as well. We'll see if we get Eric on the line. We want to throw out a couple topics and, and get the discussion going. Before we do, let's thank our platinum sponsor. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. I also want to thank our gold sponsors, Particles Plus, Healthy Indoors Magazine, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, and AEML Inc. Laboratory. And, of course, our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, and the Restoration Industry Association. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to Andrew Gunzar, Certified Safety Consultant, St. Louis, Missouri, who was first to identify histoplasmosis and cryptococcus as the two primary fungal infection risks found in bird and bat droppings. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for today, Friday 8, 2019, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company, providing unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here's today's trivia questions. Name the trio of men who independently developed the microphone. Back to you, Joe. All right. Thanks, Cliff. Hey, um, just a, a quick logistical thing. If you want to text me privately, I'm just Joe. Uh, Joe Hughes is John. You got to have faith, my engineer. So um, if you want to text me privately, just go to Joe. If you want to send it out to the whole group, send it out to the whole group. All right, we're going to throw out some topics today. I want to start with something non-controversial, you know, kind of easy to flow with. Let's talk a little bit about the new green deal, Cliff. What do you think, Eric? <laughs> if you want, sure, go ahead. The new green deal. Um, you know, I, I just find that interesting that, that there's more of an emphasis on on um, buildings than I expected in, in the, you know, it's not a proposal. It's not a, uh, it's not a regulation. It's not even a proposal to develop a regulation. It's just a, a, you know, kind of a, I don't know what you would call it. They have a, they have a, they have some terminology they use for, but essentially what they're saying is we need to reduce carbon emissions and they go over different, areas where we have these major carbon emissions, whether it's, you know, developing electricity or, you know, power plants or cars. And one of the big ones is buildings. And I, I thought very interesting that they um, are focused as much on buildings as they are. And I thought it was uh, 
you know, something that's kind of encouraging that, that we're looking at maybe focusing more on buildings again and um, getting them, the new buildings to be more energy efficient to start with and then to make some changes to the existing building stock to help make them a little more energy efficient. And I'll just real quickly throw out, if you get a chance, listen to the show uh, we did uh, with Todd Usher. He's building these net zero homes in Greenville, South Carolina, actually. And it's, it's really the, the addition of one inch of XPS insulation on the exterior of the building enclosure does phenomenal things, at least for energy efficiency, uh, for resiliency, and a lot for air um, air barriers. It really helps to add a great air barrier. It's amazing um, the 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 improvement in indoor air quality and in energy efficiency that you see. Now, it's not all they do, but it's a big part of what they do. Cliff, let me throw it out to you. You know, I think in terms of the Green Deal, Joe, I think that the one thing that's most important is we don't make the same mistakes that we've made previously. You know, when we just tightened the buildings and we wanted to save the energy and we created all sorts of alternative problems inside buildings in terms of, you know, diminishing air quality and, and, and so on and so forth. So I do hope that we get it right. And I think Todd's getting it right down there in terms of, you know, with air exchangers and, and, and so on and so forth. I just hope that, uh, you know, in retrofits and, and things like that, that they do consider, uh, you know, the effect that tightening the buildings is going to have. That's a, it's an important point. And um, I, I think, We've had a lot of good guests on the show. Nate Adams it comes to mind who's been talking about the uh, the way we improve the building stock and, and a lot of and actually we we did a flashback last week to a show with Brett Singer and he talked a lot about you know build it tight, ventilate it right. And uh, then if you go back to the show we did, uh, I'm trying to think. Um, oh, Shelly Miller and and they were looking at yeah we want to ventilate but we have to be careful about where we're at when we do the ventilation as well, because if, if we're in an area where there's a lot of traffic, for instance, it might be causing problems as opposed to, um, you know, fixing the problems or, or, or improving the issue. So I think um, some of the shows we've done recently have really uh, kind of already been ahead of that curve. Let's uh, clip, throw out another topic, if you would. Okay. You know, I, this is something that I, I've been thinking a lot about because, you know, we all have to make choices. And, you know, I remember, you know, one of my favorite scenes in The Godfather is when, uh, you know, Hyman Roth tells Michael Corleone, you know, this is the business that, that we've chosen. And, you know, we, whether it's restoration or it's indoor air quality, you know, this is the industry uh, or industries uh, in which we're involved. And we have choices. You know, years ago, we used to go to conventions. We used to read magazines, and that's how we would get our information. I think since then, things have changed. Uh, things are available online. And really, it's really about professional time management. And I think that the trends of how people are spending their professional time are changing. That's one of the things, you know, I wanted to just throw out there. You know, where do people in our industry uh, that want to seek advice from peers or, or network, uh, you know, where are they doing this online? 
Uh, are they doing it in chat rooms and, and forums? And if so, which ones? Uh, you know, or conferences, which ones are they going to? Uh, you know, what, you know, and why did they make that choice? You know, is, is, did they make a choice of one conference over another? You know, why did they do that? Um, and I, the next thing is, how much time do you spend a day or a week, uh, you know, doing this, uh, you know, engagement, you know, with others online? Uh, you know, I, I kind of like to know that. And you know, one That's of the go ahead, Cliff. And, you know, one of the biggest concerns that I'm going to throw out there is, you know, I look at a couple of the, uh, the forms that are primarily in the restoration end. And, you know, the biggest concern I have is whenever I see someone ask for help, you know, certainly the person asking for help has a lack of experience or probably has a lack of training or a lack of engagement, you know, within the industry. So they post the question and inevitably the answer is someone who quotes from IICRC standard or something that they've heard from a training class or, or whatever. And in many, many of these situations, I look at it and just know from experience, you know, there's a better way. That's wrong. It's not what I would do. So I'm just wondering how dangerous that is because they, they tend to, uh, you know, stifle innovation. They tend to stifle independent thought. So, um, you know, I think we've got some interaction, actually, from some of the people uh, as well. I think you bring up a lot of good points. Um, and and how do you sort through the, the, the tons of information? And there's a lot of good information that's coming out. Uh, but how do you sort through that? Let's see if we can't get to uh, Jay. Uh, Jay, and then, then I want to bring in Pete, because Pete works a lot with RIA. Starting with your first question. Cliff, well, where are people going for their information? Um, Jay, you, you guys at IAQA, you've, you've experimented with Facebook groups, and I think you had a LinkedIn group, and uh, you've had, um, you know, of course, the conferences, and you have the, uh, you have the local uh, chapter meetings. Where, where do you see this headed? Where are people going for their information? That's one of the things we want to do at IHUA is be the powerhouse in the education part of our industry. We want to be the people that people go to for their answers, whether it be, you know, the Facebook, LinkedIn, our conference. Uh, you saw this year how much our conference changed. And, you know, that's just going to be the building block. And it's going to be expanding. Uh, we're totally breaking down our education committee. We built the whole thing for our educational programs. So we want to address all facets of the industry, you know, whether it be for the remediators, the consultants, or the, for the duct cleaners, and where we can be the melting pot for the whole industry, where we'll be the go-to people for their answer where do you get the most activity now i mean is it the conference obviously isn't as big as it used to be um you know i don't know how your facebook page does uh, can, do you know that off the top of your head since the transition and everything i don't know the exact numbers or anything um they're in the process of evaluating 
evaluate LinkedIn, Facebook pages, everything like that, because, one, there is no way of ever tracking it. We're in a process right now of new members coming on. What's their preferred? We do the majority of our communication via email. You know, how much of that is read, et cetera, and that just takes time to develop the history of it. I've noticed one um, I left out is Twitter. A lot of the young, especially the academics, they do almost everything through Twitter. Um, I've been actually trying to get a hold of a few of them by email, and I've noticed that it takes a week or so before they get back to you on email. But if you send them something to, through Twitter, you get a response right away. So it's it's really confusing for us older folks sometimes to figure out where the you know where where the action is and where and, and there are so many different choices and they're all competing for this same uh, you know for this same I guess uh, group of people. Like I say, you got LinkedIn, you got Twitter, you got Facebook, you've got email, you've got uh, newsletters that people send out, you've got the actual conferences. Pete, let me, let me pull you in here for a minute, Pete. What, what's RIA? What's the experience with the restoration side of things uh, as far as this topic goes? Well, I, I mean, I, I think RIA, just like IEQA and others, have, you know, the LinkedIn, the Facebook, they have all that stuff, you know. I see the issue is that then the, the associations also have to compete uh, with the trade media, uh, whether it's R and R, the Clean Facts, uh, you know, etc. And so uh, I think there's a lot of overlap. And then you toss in the independent groups with the rebels and the, the, the number of others. Um, there's a lot of people, particularly a lot of the people who are very active on those groups you find a lot of the same people, you know, monitor all those. So, uh, you know, I don't know that you get that much difference of viewpoint and opinion. I will tell you, and listen to Cliff, um, part of the this stuff is most of the answers are based in history. Um, and it seems that societally, you know, we lose the track of just trying to find out what's already been done before because the answers are there. So in REA's particular case, one of the things that we had, and we haven't had it in a while now, is we had a lot of historical and technical information that could be accessed or searched on our website. Now, that's going back several years. We made some changes in our website. I think a part of it was financial, and, and part of that was because the site that we had several years ago uh, had a lot of components in it to it that we probably didn't need as an association. So when we made the transition to have the website be more relevant to what we needed and put that in economic uh, context, you can't find things that were used to be out there. So, you know, when somebody, you know, Cliff talks about a lot of the questions just because someone lacks experience, well, you know, it, there's hardly anything in, in, in our industries now, both in, in the air quality and restoration, that hasn't been experienced or been done before, that someone doesn't have the answer for, or certainly has, this, you know, a laundry list of things that you could go to. And from our age perspective, I think we've lost the ability to bring that information up on our own website for our members or even just the general public that could go and search in there. Um, 
I, I also think that there's so much stuff that you can just get through Google, you know, just through searching. You could find just about anything, you know, put a couple of words in a whole bunch of stuff comes up. Hmm. Um, and people, they will now move to, to the social media platforms and Twitter and things like you said. And there's still, we've lost the fact of the personal contact of building your relationships. You know, the next the next generations, they could be in the same room and they don't talk to each other. They have their faces on their machines and they're going back and forth, and texting, instant messaging, or whatever the case would be. So I don't know. That's part of the society. I think that there's still something to be gained, but it's very expensive and it's time consuming to travel to locations and there's a lot of competing events, which makes the argument that you know there should be more consolidation in these crossover audiences. Um, if people can only, you know, go to so many things and be away for so much. The, the other comment I wanted to make was funny. When, when the first question you said non-controversial when you brought up the Green Deal, Joe, of course, if you get into the political connotations of the Green Deal, which has been on TV the last several days, that is very controversial. But one of the things in the Green Deal, you guys only talked about it from, you know, the air quality perspective, but they're talking about eventually wanting to eliminate air domestic air travel and set up a a, uh, uh, a universal rail system throughout the U.S., which is something that a big difference between the U.S. and Europe. Europe, you know, they travel a lot by rail. And I was just thinking, if we move to that model to, you know, to eliminate the emissions and the carbon footprint and all that, well, then how difficult will it be to go go to places just like there's no air travel available and you know then then we're, we're strictly kind of online and back to that let me uh real quick I, I noticed a couple great texts here and one I, I want to agree with is uh, well there's a couple one is questions on uh, mold and health effects that has been a real difficult issue for us as well I've had Cliff and I we've probably had 12 to I have a list of them and I'm going to put it out next week because I see the comments coming in on that. Um, there's a list of shows we've done with medical doctors and I, I, there's over 20 shows. Uh, many of them were with one with uh, Richie Shoemaker, but we've also had great shows with uh, other medical doctors, you know, more, uh, more allergy immunology types like Dr. Jay Portnoy and, uh, Two three weeks ago, we had what I thought was one of the best shows we've ever had with uh, Dr. David Corey, and um, I want to put all that in one area where people can get to it, so that if they have questions, they can at least see the different opinions out there. I don't think there's any one opinion on on the health effects of mold. They also mentioned the um, I think Patsy, you may have mentioned this group, the AF. Trying to find it, F A C O G. I, that's a, I think, Margaret Christensen, MD, I think they uh, have a newer organization focused on mold health effects. And uh, I, I'm not sure if at one time they were affiliated with uh, Dr. Shoemaker's group and, and they, they've kind of done their own thing, but it is a lot, it is very splintered. The other one I want to point out is when we're talking about resources, this is one I've found to be really helpful for me and it's the homeenergypros.org. And uh, some may think it's just a building science website, but it's not. They have um, a lot of areas. John pulled it up for us. 
they have a lot of good information on building science, but also on indoor air quality. They have a section on, you know, indoor air quality and, and uh, cooking, for instance. They have, and there are, you can ask questions. And this is, I, I think, sponsored by um, it's a division of the Home Performance Coalition. And I, I, for some reason, think the U.S. Department of Energy is also um, heavily involved with that site as well. So that's another good site. Hey, I wanted to see... Do, is Carl Grimes on the line? Because he, he gets around and sees a lot of these conferences. Do we John? Yeah, Carl, I'm, I'm here, Joe. Carl, let's, um, let's get your opinion on this, you know, because I don't, you know, fortunately for you, um, you're able to go to any conference you want pretty much, it seems. And um, in fact, you travel around the world going to these different conferences and events. And I know you, have participated in a lot of the um, Facebook groups for people that have been um, had, had issues with mold in their homes and, and so forth. And, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that and, and the fractured uh, communications that we have in the industry. And, and if there's anything we can do to help fix that. Well, yeah, it's a big question. Uh, and there's like two or three starting points uh, to that question. I think what I would kind of um, condense it down to is, yes, there are sites out there for professionals. Um, and yes, there are sites out there for medical doctors. And yes, there are sites out there for building science. And yes, there are sites out there then for the, the general public. And there are sites out there for people that have uh, uh, equipment and uh, services available to all of those groups. And it is incredibly fragmented, not only from the point of view of the, like the, the focal points of interest that I just mentioned, uh, of not talking to each other, but within each of those entities, it's fractured and fragmented. And when I talk to people, whether it's uh, colleagues that ask questions or it's uh, uh, the general public, which is uh, probably you know 90% of my focus now for the last few years, I used to tell people, you know, do your due diligence, go out and research. And what I get when uh, what I, the feedback I get from that, from professionals and from the lay public alike, is. Well, that's great, but there's so much information out there that you just alluded to, you and Cliff, earlier. There's so much information out there. How do I sort it out? So for me, one of the big problems is how does anyone look at the information and how do they know whether it's credible or not? It used to be if a doctor said it, that was gospel. Uh, a, a friend of mine who's a retired medical doctor says that uh, MD – stands for medical deity and that's kind of the way a lot of them a lot of them uh, act and we look for authority so well a doctor said this a doctor said that we each kind of get our own authorities lined up whether they're really an authority or not and whether it's trusted information or not whether it's curated information or not whether it's based on facts or not uh, and even if it's based on facts, you can twist it around at the end on your conclusions to anything you want. Just a, a quick example of how that happened. I was in a, a court case. Actually, it was mediation. Um, this is 
over 10 years ago. And the, uh, I was I was testifying on the behalf of the uh, homeowner and the CIH, not, he just happened to be a CIH, not picking on the CIHs. But he, he said, after my testimony, then they asked him to testify. He says, I agree with everything that Carl Grimes just said, except huh. the conclusion. Wow. Okay? Except the conclusion. And that's what happens a lot of times. And the only thing that I've kind of found is a, a way through that with various groups that I, I, I talk to or on uh, Facebook or other groups and entities is if you can come out and not engage in the rhetoric and not engage in the politics and not engage in, well, this is what, this is the truth. And no, I agree with that person and that sort of thing is to say, let's back up and look at what we do know. There are some things that we know. There are some things that are factual. Let's start there and then see where that, what kind of conclusions we can derive from factual information. This is independent, verifiable, accepted information and start down that line. And what I get, not all the time, but at least an encouraging response then is, oh, I didn't know we knew anything. I didn't know there were things that we could rely on. I didn't know there was information that we could go to and start with. So I'm kind of becoming a person of what's the fundamental, what's the basic information. It takes longer. It can be confusing. People get impatient with it. Uh, I just want to what, just tell me what to do. Well, I can't tell you exactly what to do. I need some more information. And then I can fill in the blanks and I can help help start guiding you down the road. So that's kind of a long, convoluted answer, but I don't see anybody really taking that approach. Every organization that has a conference has their own culture and their own way of doing things and their own selection process. Everybody out there, the, uh, the IAQA uh, LinkedIn group, I haven't seen it active for a while, but we got our a little coterie of, of uh, experts on there that this group agrees and that group agrees and these two groups fight and there's a 10, 12 people talking to each other and that's it. So we got to figure a better way of communicating. I guess you know, is the way I would sum it up. And I, I didn't do this on purpose, but I think part of what you and your group are doing at, at Hayward score is trying to find this information and then put it into a format where homeowners can few questions about their home and get some, some uh, well-researched and uh, well-documented um, responses and, and, and recommendations for what to do. So I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Hayward score. And I also uh, want to bring in Joe Madosh here. I think Joe, Joe's that 229 number, uh, John. Joe's also with Hayward score and, and he's also a former, you can't bring him on. You got him, Joe? Uh, I'm here. Yeah, I'm here. Hey, Joe, Can you hear me? I just wondered if there was anything you'd like to add uh, in this on this topic. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, um, it's ironic that we're all trying to give our opinions about other people's opinions. I think that's kind of the, the <laughs> irony that we're not happy about. So um, I, what, what to me is, is you know, always the sad part is that there's some amazing, intelligent people that have done phenomenal resources, uh, research that we can use as a resource and actually use them as uh, we refer to as evidence-based best practice. But yet, as an industry, in any industry, you could talk about, you know, the 
the uh, home professionals or anything, HVAC, IAQ, uh, home performance, we don't have that as a collective uh, understanding of knowledge. Like this is the things that you should lean on before you go to Google the weird stuff you're going to find. So it's, I'm really disappointed that yet we've been able to find out that th this is much more valuable than, you know, some guy boarding off about how he's got, you know, mold stuck in his ear. And this is a, a major issue caused by certain things that we decide that that's somebody who's important uh, because he gets a lot of people that follow him uh, on a Twitter account. So uh, mm -hmm. I do wish we could get a better priority um, on what we're finding as incredible well, knowledge. I mean, you've been in the indoor air quality world. You've been in the home performance world. I, I thought you maybe you've done some HVAC cleaning in, in, in the back, uh, you know, in your background. Is it any better in those industries? No, it's, it's universal that we have a lot of, a few people that really have great information and then a bunch of people that are, you know, throwing out their opinion without any reason as to why this is and, there's no way to determine what's better than uh, others. So it's uh, we're trying to get there with some good forums, but we're not able to extrapolate. This is actually something that uh, should be a strong reference. It's like you go to a forum and somebody asks a question and then you find it and you're like, there's an answer. That's usually at the top. Like this is the answer on how to fix something on your phone. We don't have that. We, we, we People come here and they all talk about various stuff, but there isn't a here's the best answer based upon you know, evidence and what we should be doing. And that's really something that we're missing based upon what Pete said. We've been there. We've done it. We have a lot of great information. Uh, why can't we come out with, here's the strongest answer based upon great professional knowledge. Good point. Hey, Joe. Yes, Pete. Joe, you was, yeah. Go, I want to dovetail off this conversation because I see you getting real close to going to halftime. Yes, sir. Carl hit on really the key point. There's so many, uh, uh, different opinions in different areas and the different cultures and the different conferences. And we, we, you know, people just want the answer and sometimes they don't want to do any work to, you know, there is no just one particular answer, but at least if you could give them a short laundry list, maybe they can kind of figure out, you know, kind of the good, better, best type of a deal. I think partly what you said, Joe, of organizing the website, if you look at uh, the IEQA radio website, if you could uh, categorize that by five or six different categories of types of shows that you had, and somebody could could search that website and say, hey, bring up all the MPs, bring up all of the occupational guys, bring up all of the building scientists, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think that's a good start. You've been talking about it for a while, and you certainly have a lot. But I want to make one recommendation that the associations could consider by bringing up something that, RAA did years ago before our rebrand when we were ASCR. In 2003, in the post-Mold is Gold era, and just before the S5, first S520 was published, one of the things, and Cliff was on the executive committee at the time, we had Marty King uh, do a kind of a literature review of all the governmental documents out there that dealt with mold, and there were primarily the five, the EPA documents, New York City guidelines, ACJH, maybe a Canadian document. And there was an eight-page document which, which the association published. It addressed 20, had 28 questions around assessment, remediation, sampling, etc. And what Marty did as the technical director of association 
he used those documents as an authoritative source to find out on those major topics and the questions of the time that people wanted to know, where did the documents agree on a certain point and where did they disagree on significant points? And it became uh, a very strong tool. Now, that wasn't just one little area of mold. Now, if you look at how the topic, if you merge into air quality and restoration, it's, there's a lot of sub-disciplines under there. The, what the associations don't have, and our, and our association did for years, we had two experts in their area, Stephen Spivak and uh, Marty King, and they were kind of the go-to guys. I don't know that IAQA ever had a guy like that, per se, where they ever had, you know, an assigned technical director. Industry was a little bit different as that was evolving. Maybe this is something a guy like John Downey comes on later that a group like Sirius, somebody could do, is, is have somebody authoritatively search out the, whatever the key information is, wherever it comes from, and, and Joe Mavis, you know, kind of alluded to this in his comments, so that it could be put out there and could be easily attainable because it's just too hard to sift through everything. And a lot of people, when they're asking a question, they don't even have the ability to know what question to ask or how to sift the information. So if it was narrowed down and they can access it more easily, maybe that's something the associations or some kind of a nonprofit, somebody could do that doesn't have a self-interest, you know, per se, at least not a personal organizational self-interest, but, you know, something that serves the greater good. So whatever that's worth. I think that's a, that's a good point, Pete. And what I'd like to do is we're going to go to halftime, and when we come back from halftime, I want to give John a heads up. We want to bring John Donnie in. He's the uh, executive director of Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute. Um, my acronyms, uh, I've still got it, Cliff. i still got those acronyms. All right, we're going to stop and thank our sponsors, and we'll be back in 90 seconds with the second half of today's show. Mm-hmm. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Gold sponsors are Particles Plus Engineers and Manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters and air quality monitoring instrumentation. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at Healthy Indoors. And AEML Laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLinc.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at WolfSense.com. Association sponsors are the Indoor Air Quality Association, a multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more at iaqa.org and RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. All right, we're back for the second half. By the way, Pete, um, it's funny. John and I were just talking this week about redoing the website, reorganizing things, and and making it easier to search. So um, definitely uh, you are correct on that. All right, let's bring John Downey in here. John, do we have you on the line? You sure do. Hi, Joe. How are you? 
Mr. Donnie, I'm great. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine. Do I Good. sound okay? I'm on uh, on the computer. Sounds okay. Not too bad. Not too bad. Hey, you. You know, you've been listening in. I hope a little bit. I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts um, to add to from the first half of the show. Um, yeah. Well, it was. It's been very interesting. It's certainly along the lines of the things that I'm working on. The first thing I'll say is something uh, goes back years and years and years and years and years to the man that I consider a mentor and really my inspiration in the industry, uh, Dr. Michael Berry, who's now retired. And what Berry always said when he got in a situation where people were espousing opinions is, show me your data. Uh, Barry is a, as a scientist and he felt very strongly that, you know, if people are throwing out opinions without data, there's really not a lot of value there because you're going to have people with other opinions without data. And, and, and what has happened in, in the industry and frankly in the world today is that it's, we've had an explosion of, um, uh, outlets for opinions. And so, you know, that is, uh, that, that kind of proliferates and it, it hurts. It hurts. It makes it more difficult for those who aren't trafficking in opinions to get good information. Now, as you know, Joe, you know, what I am, what my mission and goal is right now is to bring science, bring peer review, bring data, again, because, especially because from Mike's inspiration, Mike Berry's inspiration, that's what I, I want to do. And so it's interesting, especially for me listening to this, that the people on the call are, are really saying, we need the good data. We need to be able to discriminate between opinions and, uh, and facts. Uh, we also need and, you know, I was going to say there's a dearth of it, but I really don't think there is, it, uh, and that is research. My initial thought is there's not enough of it, but I think more than anything, it's found in silos that aren't necessarily accessible to all of us. And so getting that information. Sloan is a great organization as a facilitator of getting that information. Oh, sorry about that. All right, buddy. <laughs> uh, I'm in my office. <laughs> so anyway, does that make sense? Sure. And Sloan is, is putting a lot of money into a, essentially a uh, foundation of indoor air quality and indoor environments. But, um, you know, getting it out to the, the practitioners has been, you know, difficult. I mean, they're just getting started and they've had some, some, uh, some success there and we've tried to help them with that. But, uh, trying to get that research out to practitioners in a way where they can use it can be difficult. Um, actually, I had another comment here, and I, I'm not sure who it's from, but it said uh, they had one comment about the industry not documenting intervention and changes in the symptomology in occupants. I think that's a great comment. You know, I don't know how easy that is for um practitioners to do on a case-by-case -case basis, but maybe if they had some some guidance from maybe the industry associations or, or, or from a group like Siri, John, 
where, you know, we had a way of documenting um, before we started the project. Here were the, you know, a standardized way. Uh, here were the issues that we were, uh, were brought to our attention. We, we completed the following uh, work on the project. And, and since that work was completed, here's where we are with those symptoms. Uh, let me bring um, Carl back on that because I'm, I'm curious, Carl, um, with Hayward score, you're, you're getting all this information in about the issues people have in their indoor environment. Then you're making recommendations for how to address those issues. Are you including any kind of feedback from the people who take your recommendations about what it did for their symptoms? Um, good question, Joe. And uh, yes, we are. Um, we aren't quite as far along on that part of it as we are on getting information about the houses, their homes, and their behaviors and so forth. But um, we recently revamped our questionnaire to include uh, symptomology. So this is uh, self-reported symptoms. Um, but it's, what, we'll, what, what we're beginning to find and get some initial data on is that as they make changes, and we'll, we'll some of our surveys on, on this is showing there's a, a really high amount of people that are making changes in their home and uh, that, it is, that it is making a difference. It is making a positive difference. So they, they, if, we, if, we, if they get engaged, they stay engaged. Uh, so we are moving in that direction, but there's one other part that I want to respond to, particularly to John Downey, is there's two parts to this as I see it. Yes, we need the research. Yes, we need the data. Um, and that's really important because if we don't have a factual foundation to stand on, then we'll just, we're just spouting, you know, personal opinion and perhaps nonsense. And maybe somebody is accidentally right, but we don't know that. The other part of it, though, and I go back, you mentioned Sloan. I was at one of their conferences a little over a year ago in D.C. where the keynote speaker was uh, Ed Yong. Y-O-N-G. He's the science writer for Atlantic Magazine. And in his presentation, he said, you cannot change uh, opinions with facts. And there's other studies and others that reading that I've been doing in the last several months that are saying the same thing. When the sociologists and the psychologists and those people are out there and they look at why, how do people form opinions? How do people uh, make decisions uh, to act? to do something, yes, they want facts, but if they don't have a good story to go with it, it doesn't have meaning for them in a way that they understand. Interesting. The people that do, the people that may do use stories and do use connect emotionally with people are unfortunately the pump jockeys and the snake oil salesmen. Yep. They yep. do a really good job of that, but they don't have a factual basis. We've got a factual basis, but we don't have a good story. You know, you bring up a good point, Carl, and, and I'm re I've been reading this book, How TED Talks, and, um, you know, it, it takes all these TED Talks, and, and it, it helps speakers understand how to connect with an audience, and, and the number one tip is to, to tell a story, um, and, and I think that's an important point you bring up, and, and John, actually, it leads to a text I got from John Lapoter. Uh, can we get John on the line? We're going to try and get John on. I didn't know you were able to join us, John, so I want to make sure I get a chance to um, say hello. He said, research to practice to the people who 
are affected by IAQ problems. These connections are not priorities. Um, actually, I'm reading the wrong one. John, consumers need a place to go for actual science-based industry-supported assistance for help with issues involving their indoor environment health. Um, and also, he had said earlier that we have too many newly established organizations and too many opinion-based training programs that include ozone enzymes and chemicals for mold remediation. Consumers have no idea what is fact or fiction. How do we reach those consumers? That's the, that's the question. John, do we have you? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Sure. I'm good. Yeah, I, I don't know how we overcome this. I know in, in, in Florida, we're just overwhelmed with brand new industry organizations that make people sound like, you know, they're an international organization with all of the answers in the world, and they're going to magically make people healthier in their homes if they use certain filtration devices, certain enzymes, certain chemicals. You know, what I tell the people that we work with, is you stop being a consultant when you're selling something. And that includes just simply receiving a commission on it. So if you're there for the purpose of the sale, you're not there for the purpose of the consulting. I tell people, step one, don't buy anything from a salesperson. The vast majority of the people that we compete with, unfortunately, are salespeople. It's a good point, John. And I see Don, Don Weeks is uh – that one text was from Dawn, um, that the connections are not the priority of any professional organization, research to practice, that, that that connection has not been a priority. It's funny, I just I just was talking to Richard Shaughnessy and Brad Prezant um, about ISIAC, and, and they're, you know, they have a vice president practice, and Carl, I know you were one at one time, and, and how difficult it's been to uh, get that research into practitioners hands um very interesting thank you don and uh don if we bring you on or let us know and send me a text and maybe you have something to add cliff let me go back to you for just a moment um i don't want to spend all, the whole show on this one topic so i'm wondering if you could throw out another topic you know i, I want to make one, co one one last comment and then we can you know kind of go mm -hmm. further I just think that some things are common sense. You know, I'm not sure that you need testing for things that are common sense. I'm not sure why when I take my car to a car wash, you know, that it gets clean or, or why my laundry gets clean when I, when I do certain things or, uh, again, I think some things are relatively simple and I think this need to quantify and qualify and create data for things that, uh, you know, are, 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 that really work on common law, I think, uh, you know, might be a waste of time and energy. I do think that there are places where that information uh, is important. But uh, let's think. Next thing, topic-wise, Joe, how about um, how about standards? Okay. Standards, you know. <laughs> And that ties in really well with, with what we're discussing, actually. And, and earlier there was a comment, uh, I think it was you, Cliff, about, you know, just look to the standard um, as the answer for everything. And, you know, standards, depending on what type of standard it is, uh, they give you some, some guideline anyway, but they don't answer specific questions a lot of times, although some try to. Um, let's, let's, who do you think we ought to bring in on that, Cliff? Well, at some point, I think you got to bring John in. You know, I think that you know he 
probably, you know, I think John, you know, the key to John is I think he knows multiple standards <laughs> rather, John, than, uh, rather, yeah, than, right. rather than just one. So uh, I, I think that uh, his input would be good. John, let's talk a little bit about standards. What, you know, you're in the wild, wild west down there, Florida. Um, you know, we used to think it was out in California, but I think Florida has taken the the lead in, um, you know, just all kinds of off the wall um, things going on in that area. What, what? And I know you've worked hard to try and get people in your state and actually in the country to follow standards. Um, particularly, I know you you thought like the ASTM standard for indoor air quality and the other one for mold uh, and. and assessment um, that not enough people were following them. Have you seen any, have you had any effect? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's uh, starting to shift where people are becoming much more aware of the prevailing industry standards of practice. So we do a, a lot of peer review on uh, people that are you know, providing mold assessments and, and other assessments in people's homes. And they're either not citing standards or they're citing standards that have been withdrawn. But most importantly, they typically don't cite the prevailing industry standards of practice. Collection of air samples for mold spores, collection of tape samples, collection of swab samples, mold inspection, uh, indoor air quality, uh, water uh, damage, water air infiltration, thermal imagery. There are standards for everything. And if you're going to be a true consultant and you're going to be an advocate for your, your client, you really should read these. You don't need to memorize them, but you need to read them and understand that there are a lot of really smart people in this field that have gone through a lot of time to document what they feel is the best minimum standard for you to follow in, in your field. To not know those minimum standards is criminal. I'm not saying that you have to follow them because clearly each, each job is going to dictate how we approach what we do, and sometimes less is more. Sometimes we need to do more, but at least knowing the minimum standard of practice really helps. Here in Florida, uh, I think we're, we're right at a dozen new industry organizations. Each one of them are typically very proud of the fact that they've written their own training uh, because the, there is a lack of standards in this particular industry. When people come to me and, and they tell me, hey, I just was taught by a Ph.D., so you know you got to listen to that guy. He wrote his own training in the absence of training. And I tell him, he wrote his own training because he doesn't believe in the current industry standards of practice. So you've got one guy in opposition to several industry organizations and several, several consensus bodies. What do you believe in it? The group based on history and, and practice in the field or the one guy because he's got a Ph.D. behind his name? That's the unfortunate industry that we're in. Interesting. Interesting. Anybody else want to jump in on this one? Well, I don't know if we have everybody muted. I guess I'll have to say for sure who we want to bring in. Cliff, let me get back to you on that for a minute. What do you think? You know, I think that alternatives to IICR standards are very important. I agree that I like John's term of minimum standards because I think in many of these situations, IICRC goes over the top in, in what's required in, in certain situations. You know, my biggest concern is I really believe the person that should be calling the shots is a well-trained, well-experienced 
consultant or remediator and not looking at a book that was written in an echo chamber, you know, by a bunch of people that, you know, that, that lack, uh, you know, the, the necessary experience to write a standard for something that they're not necessarily that familiar with. And I think, you know, one of the, th- I was thinking about this clip. We did the show with Rusty uh, Amarante at Belfort. I was, I was thinking about, okay, we're, I'm thinking about the research to practice uh, conference this year. And I'm thinking about keynote speakers. And I'm thinking, you know, Rusty would be a really good keynote speaker. But on the other hand, I was a little disappointed. I, you know, I'd be happy to talk to Rusty about it as well. But he, he kind of gave me the impression anyway, and maybe he didn't mean to, that consultants are a waste of time on, on a lot of these projects. And, and maybe I misunderstood, but I think when you've got a good team relationship between a consultant and a contractor, especially on these larger, more uh, complex projects, that it, it can really help with the outcome. I don't know. Did I misread that, Cliff? You know, I think Rusty's point, Joe, is that, you know, disaster restoration, but there, there have been huge, huge fires in buildings that contractors put the building back together themselves in fire situations. It just seems that we need consultants in mold situations, not in others. And I really believe that that's really his point. It's not that we don't need uh, consultants, you know, to check for asbestos and you know, hazards and, and so on and so forth. But I do think that there's an overuse uh, of consultants in, in the mold remediation field. That, you know, I, I strongly believe that. I Let think that uh, this has got a great point. Let me just add this one point. There, there's a specific difference between dealing with a water loss, a fire loss, asbestos, or lead and mold. And, and that is the, the very specific emotional aspect of the the restoration contractors continuing with the need to sample and identify the black toxic mold. You don't have black toxic asbestos. You don't have black toxic soot. It's soot. It's asbestos. So the the need to identify whether you've got good mold or bad mold to determine how you're going to remediate, that con is why the the, uh, industry said, we need to get an IEP in here to – help regulate, to help make this right. And what she ended up with, as Joe always says, it's the IEP right to work program. Right. It's, it's not necessarily needed, but it's also in many cases necessary. I, I still have many people that say, oh my God, you've got the black mold. Good news, I can get rid of it. It's all a con. You just don't have that in fire, lead, asbestos, silica, and in most cases, but now starting in a big way, water. Now in water, you know, you've, you've got this uh, human pathogen test that can find these micro, micro fine DNA identified particles of human waste. Good luck trying to get a house clean without finding that crap again, but they'll yeah. declare an entire house lost based on that. So the water is going to end up the same as the mold, but you're never going to have black toxic silica or black toxic asbestos. It's just asbestos. That, that's the problem with the mold in the water. Good point. John, let me bring John Donnie back in here. John, I think you had a comment you wanted to bring up. I, and I noticed this text too, Don Weeks, Scott Armour. I'm so glad you guys are joining in on this. We'll have to get you in on the on the phone too here the next time we do this. It looks like we'll be doing it again. Uh, Mr. Donnie. Yeah, I, I just wanted to kind of give the other side on the standards question uh, from Cliff as I was thinking about it and listening to people. And that is, Properly done, standards can take the science and it can also uh, 
channel the science to the practice because standards are about all about the practice of a you know a um, uh, of a discipline and if you if you get a variety of people uh, participating in a standard with with well intentioned obviously and and you know there are you know standards are not perfect nobody believes they're per- I certainly don't believe they're perfect but I think between a standard and uh, well done standards that bring, that document the processes using research and science you can start to get beyond the opinions that that cause a lot of confusion especially with consumers that said i do appreciate what cliff is saying which basically is you know what somebody that really knows what they're doing is going to steer you in the right direction and they're but i see those people as unfortunately too few and far between uh, and and those people, I would think, would primarily function above and beyond standards. I don't think their decisions would typically, hopefully they would not be in conflict with standards, but would be standard plus. That's all. Thank you. Thank you, John. I, I wish I could go through all these texts, um, but fire is also a mess right now. And uh, I saw Scott, Scott Armour put a nice post up on that. So check out the texts, folks. Um, Cliff, I, I think we're running a little low on time here. I just wanted yeah. to get final thoughts from you, and then I'll, I'll do a final thought. And if anybody else wants to jump in and have a final thought, please text me here, and I will and and do uh, send it to Joe, not to Joe Hughes. Go ahead, Cliff. No, I, I think my final thought, Joe, is this was an experiment this week, and uh, you know I think that it was positive. I think we got a lot of people involved. I think we got a lot of great ideas. I think what I'm going to try to do is in the blog. I think I'm going to grab uh, all the comments if I can and uh, put them all in there, and uh, you know we'll just. I think. I think you're right, Cliff. I mean, I wasn't sure how this would go. I'm glad we did it. Um, I think we got some great comments, and I think this will lead to further discussion. Um, the only thing I think we should do differently would be maybe to not have as many uh, topics as uh, we thought we were going to get to. We had, you know, four or five different topics on the uh, show announcement. I may just limit it to uh, a smaller number of topics and try and get more people in here talking um, but uh, one of the things I also want to note next week, Corbett Lunsford's going to join us next week. There's a new um, – Corbett's the guy that went around the country in this tiny house, him and his wife. Uh, they built a tiny house. He's a, a big uh, home energy kind of guy, um, home performance guy. Um, and he, he also – him and his wife put together a PBS – television series on home performance and um we're really looking forward to talking to corbett a little bit more about about that uh, about home performance in general but also about how you know i guess we're here talking about how to get good information out to people and to consumers in particular well i think uh corbett's come up with something now i i know that uh, you know you see these reality shows this is a little different it's not a reality show where someone you know thought what he was doing was interesting and kind of scripted what he does um this is a little different approach they they actually funded this themselves i believe but we'll find out for sure next week and then 
um, you know, shopped it around and uh, PBS took them up on it and they've been uh, putting these uh, segments on PBS. So if you get a chance, uh, Corbett Lunsford is the name, L-U-N-S-F-O-R-D. Check it out before next week's show. Uh, any other final thoughts, uh, Cliff, before we pull the plug on this one? I'm good, Joe. Thanks. All right. Well, uh, thanks so much. Oh, and now I see Hayward's a sponsor of that show as well. And uh, looking forward to uh, discussion next week with Corbett. And I'd say in another two, three weeks, maybe a month, we'll do this again. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to our guests today. Uh, we had a group of them, Carl Grimes, Joe Madosh, John Diney, John Lapoteer, Jay Steak, Eric Shapiro. Sorry I didn't get you on the line there. Um, and if I left anybody out, I apologize. We'll be back next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.